This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year in music for 1998, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 1998. We also make the case for you to vote for Missy Elliott to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Hall of Fame isn't a hall. It's a Library of Congress National Recording Registry in Washington, D.C. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 1998. In music, Interscope Records paid a radio station in Oregon $5,000 to play a song from Limp Biscuit 50 times. One would say that's the definition of payola. However, it worked, and it got Limp Biscuit noticed. Of course, online playlists now do that behavior on the regular, and it's perfectly legal, so... 1998 was also the year that the boy band slash Orlando Disney sound ramped up with songs and albums from NSYNC, The Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera, which led to MTV capitalizing on all the craze with the genre with a new afternoon TV show called Total Request Live, which premiered that year. The big album of the year was actually James Horner's soundtrack to the 1997 movie Titanic, as the movie dominated everything in pop culture in 1998. Other hit albums from the year included Lauryn Hill's The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, The Beastie Boys' Hello Nasty, Madonna's Ray of Light, Outkast's Aqua Mini, Jay-Z's Volume 2, Hard Knock Life, The Offspring's Americana, Massive Attack's Mezzanine, Alanis Morissette's supposed former infatuation junkie, Garth Brooks's Double Live album, Notorious B.I.G.'s Life After Death, Korn's Follow the Leader, DMX's It's Dark and Hell is Hot, and Marilyn Manson's Mechanical Animals. Celine Dion's song from the movie Titanic, My Heart Will Go On, was the year's biggest song. Brandy and Monica's song, The Boy Is Mine, spent 13 weeks at number one on Billboard's Hot 100 singles chart. Other big songs from 1998 were the Goo Goo Dolls' Iris, Cher's Believe, Aerosmith's Don't Want to Miss a Thing, The Offspring's Pretty Fly for a White Guy, Matchbox 20's 3AM, and Shania Twain's You're Still the One. Rock music was still going strong, with artists like The Offspring and Aerosmith having great years. However, new metal started to show its strength, with artists like Korn having monster years. Within a few years, new metal would take hard rock in a new direction, until eventually the rock genre would become pop-punk. Meanwhile, in rock music, Rob Halford of Judas Priest publicly came out which was extremely brave for a heavy metal guy to do, especially back in those days. In country music, half of the top-selling albums actually came out in 1997, including albums from Shania Twain, Garth Brooks, Leanne Rimes, Tim McGraw, and Brooks and Dunn. Garth and Leanne did have albums that also came out in 1998 and were big, while the Dixie Chicks, now known as the Chicks, broke through with the album Wide Open Spaces, and Faith Hill had a huge album with Faith. 
The soundtrack to the movie Hope Floats was also big that year. Singles-wise, Tim McGraw, Jody Messina, Faith Hill, The Dixie Chicks, Tracy Bird, George Strait, Colin Ray, Trisha Yearwood, and Sammy Kershaw all had big hits. In hip-hop, Jay-Z had a huge year with Volume 2 Hard Knock Life. Other big albums were put out by Blackstar, who were most deaf, and Talib Quili, DMX, Outkast, Gangstar, Big Pun, The Beastie Boys, Lauryn Hill, Juvenile, Busta Rhymes, Master P, Ice Cube, Fat Joe, Silk the Shocker, RZA, Cool G Rap, Onyx, Sea Murder, All Natural, and Styles of Beyond. Lauryn Hill had the biggest hip-hop single with Doo-Wop, That Thing. Other big hit songs were from Jay-Z, Outkast, Tupac, whose posthumous Greatest Hits album came out that year, Mace, Black Star, Master P, Big Pun, and Silk the Shocker. In dance music, the usual pop and R&B artist crossovers happened with hits from diverse artists as Faith Hill, Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, Cher, Madonna, and Aretha Franklin, while Deborah Cox had a huge club hit with the dance remix of her ballad, Nobody's Supposed to Be Here. As far as the more quote-unquote legit EDM artists went that year, the Benga Boys went big with the club anthem, We Like to Party. Faithless had the iconic God is a DJ. Fatboy Slim had a hit with the song and music video for Rockefeller Skank, while Todd Terry, David Morales, and Danny Teneglia had big hits. In Latin music, the top artists were Alejandro Fernandez, Ricky Martin, Buena Vista Social Club, Mark Anthony, Mania, Elvis Crespo, Charlie Za, Alejandro Sanz, and the soundtrack to the movie, Dance With Me. Bands that formed in 1998 included Acceptance, Atomic Kitten, Baptism, Bullet For My Valentine, De Facto, Doll Factory, Eagles of Death Metal, Dream, Eiffel, Evil Nine, Flight of the Concords, Gorillas, Halogen, The Irish Tenors, Mile, Neil Perry, New Breed, The Rapture, Rehab, Reliant K, Roixop, S Club 7, The Strokes, Sugar Babes, Telepop Music, Terror Squad, and 30 Seconds to Mars. Groups who either broke up before the inevitable reunion or announced a hiatus included the two live crew, the Fifth Ward Juveniles, 24-7 Spies, Afro-Nubians, the Clancy Brothers, Color Me Bad, Company B, Dead Can Dance, Eve's Plum, Faith No More, Exodus, Helium, Crisscross, Le Mans, Millie Vanilli, Porno for Pyros, The Presidents of the United States, Soul to Soul, SWV, Toad the Wet Sprocket, A Tribe Called Quest, Twisted Sister, Weezer, and White Zombie. Bands that reunited in 1998 included Modern Talking and Culture Club. Artists who were born in 1998 included rappers Juice World, Lotto, Roddy Rich, Lil Skies, Salento, Jack Harlow, and Triple X Temptation, and singers Shawn Mendes, Corbin Besson, Jonah Marias, Conan Gray, Khalid, and Maggie Lindemann. Artists who passed away in 1998 included The Voice, Frank Sinatra, Paul McCartney and Wings keyboardist, and also Paul McCartney's wife, Linda McCartney, Sonny Bono of Sonny and Cher, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Carl Perkins, singing cowboy actors Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, 
accordionist Frankie Yankovic, not to be confused with Weird Al Yankovic, or related to him for that matter. Also, Tim Kelly of Slaughter, jazz singer Betty Carter, jazz keyboardist Kenny Kirkland, salsa singer Frankie Ruiz, 80s singer Falco, Lynn Strait of Snot, Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys, singer-songwriter Brooke Benton, Wendy O. Williams of the Plasmatics, singer and actress Alice Fay, guitarist Hidetu Matsumoto of X-Japan, the inventor of the Suzuki method of music education, Mr. Shinichi Suzuki, ska singer Judge Dredd, Roz Williams of Christian Death, Rob Pilatus of Millie Vanilli, rapper Fat Pat, country singers Tammy Wynette, Grandpa Jones, Steve Sanders of the Oak Ridge Boys, and Eddie Rabbit, and drummer Cozy Powell of Rainbow. The Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Go On, from Titanic, won record and song of the year at the Grammy Awards. Other winners at the Grammys were Lauren Hill for The Miseducation of Lauren Hill for Album of the Year, while Lauren also won Best New Artist. At the Billboard Music Awards, Usher was Artist of the Year. At the MTV Video Music Awards, Madonna won Video of the Year for Ray of Light. At the American Music Awards, Will Smith, Garth Brooks, Eric Clapton, and Celine Dion were the big winners. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Birmingham, England, Dana International from Israel won for the song Diva. At the Tony Awards, The Lion King won Best Musical and Cabaret won Best Revival of a Musical. At the Academy Awards for Films of 1998 in the music genres, Best Original Score was split up that year into two different awards. Life is Beautiful won Best Dramatic Score, and Shakespeare in Love won Best Musical or Comedy Score. When You Believe from the movie The Prince of Egypt won Best Original Song. The Pulitzer Prize in Music went to Aaron J. Kernis for the String Quartet No. 2, Musica Instrumentalis, John Adams for Century Rolls, and Yehudi Weiner for Horn Trio. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, the Hall inducted songwriter, arranger, and record producer Alan Toussaint into the non-performers category. Jelly Roll Morton was inducted into the early influencers category. And in the performers category, the Hall inducted the Eagles, Gene Vincent, Lloyd Price, Santana, Fleetwood Mac, and this next artist. John Phillips met Michelle Gilliam when they were members of the mid-60s folk group The New Journeyman. They got married in 1962. Denny Doherty was a former member of the mid-60s folk groups The Mugwumps and Halifax Three. Denny met John and they started singing together while the songwriting was done by John and Michelle, who was now using her married last name, Phillips. Cass Elliott completed the quartet after she had been a member of the group The Big Three and also had a decent solo career. John Phillips wasn't actually too thrilled with having Cass in the group, but he was overruled by the rest of the band and also by their management. To be honest, John had bought into the myth that heavyset women would be bad for business, and Cass was not exactly the stereotypical Hollywood rail-thin body type. The group named itself in part as a play on words from a kid's nursery rhyme, as well as from the Hells Angels, whose female members were always called mamas, which makes it kind of strange for guys who did folk music to be inspired by a notoriously violent biker gang, 
But hey, it was the 1960s. Free love and all that. When the Mamas and the Papas first started out, things did not exactly go too well. Record labels didn't want to really sign them for one reason or another. They were finally signed to Dunhill Records in 1965, and that was when the groups that started by doing folk music found their niche by combining contemporary pop with layered harmonies. Their first single, California Dreaming, is the best example of this. The song California Dreaming was written by the Phillips, but was actually first recorded by another singer, singer Barry McGuire. The Phillips wrote the song while they were members of their former group, The Journeymen. The Mamas and the Papas actually sang backup on McGuire's version before they re-recorded and released their own version on December 8, 1965 off of their debut album, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears. It wasn't a big hit until a Boston radio station started playing the song, and then the song took off. It went to number four on Billboard's charts and was the biggest single of 1966. The song was also covered by other artists, most noticeably the group America in 1979 and the Beach Boys in 1986. California Dreaming was followed up with hits like Monday Monday, which was the group's only number one hit in America, dedicated to the one I love, 1230 Young Girls Are Coming to the Canyon, and Creek Alley, while John Phillips also co-founded the Monterey Pop Festival that turned Jimi Hendrix into a huge star in America. In the end, the group fell apart for the usual issues. There was tremendous infighting among the members, including affairs that John had had that tore apart his marriage to Michelle, along with Cass Elliot feeling isolated from the rest of the group. The band broke apart for the first time in 1969, but got back together to put out a final album in 1971. Cass Elliot went back to her solo career until her death in 1974 from heart failure, not by choking on a ham sandwich, as conspiracy theorists have said. John and Michelle Phillips actually divorced, and then John ended up becoming addicted to heroin, but then got help. He also passed away from heart failure in 2001. In 2009, his daughter Mackenzie Phillips, who became famous in the original TV version of the TV show One Day at a Time, revealed that she had had an incestuous relationship with her father, John. Denny Doherty, in the meantime, went into acting in Canada, playing theater roles mainly. After battling alcoholism, he got help and became sober. He passed away from an aneurysm in 2007. As for Michelle Phillips, she became an actress, most notably on the TV show Knott's Landing, which was a spinoff of the TV show Dallas. While Michelle and John's relationship was tumultuous, to be nice about it, there was one part that was actually pretty happy. They had a daughter named China Phillips, who would go on to front a successful singing group of her own, the 1990s adult contemporary smash hit group, Wilson Phillips, whose debut album is one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. The Mamas and the Papas' musical style with their vocal harmonies and socially conscious lyrics, as well as blending folk and rock music and their fashion sense and style of wearing beaded necklaces, fringe vests, and flowing dresses, 
heavily influenced the music and styles of the 1960s, along with making the group one of the symbols of the 1960s counterculture movement. The ladies of the group also became feminist symbols of their own because of their willingness to challenge gender norms of the time. The group influenced other groups like the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, along with the aforementioned group Wilson Phillips. The Mamas and the Papas sold over 40 million records worldwide and released five albums between 1966 to 1971. Four of those albums went top 20 on the Billboard Albums chart, with three of those going top five in their debut album, 1966's If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, going to number one. They also released 17 singles, with six of them going top 10 in their song Monday Monday, going to number one. Presented for induction by country superstar Shania Twain, John Phillips, Michelle Phillips, Denny Doherty, and Cass Elliott, the Mamas and the Papas, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 1998. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we make the case for you to vote for Missy Elliott to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. To the tale of the tape we go. Melissa Arnett Elliott, better known as Missy Mistamina Elliott, was born on July 1st, 1971 in Portsmouth, Virginia, and began her music career in the early 1990s as a member of the R&B girl group Sista. Missy Elliott's solo career took off in 1997 with the release of her debut album, Supa Dupa Fly, which was met with critical and commercial success. It was also co-produced by hit-making producer Timbaland. The album spawned hit songs such as The Rain, Supa Dupa Fly, and Sock It To Me, and earned Missy Elliott recognition as one of the leading female rappers of the time. Missy Elliott has six studio albums. Of those, every single one of them went to the top 15 on the Billboard Albums chart, with the lowest going to number 13, one going to number 5, two going to number 3, and two going to number 2. As a solo artist, Missy put out 26 songs. Of those, eight went top 40, with five going top 10, and three of those, five going top 5. As a featured artist, she was on 54 singles. Of those, 10 went top 40, with six of those going top 10, and one of those six going to number two. As a guest artist and producer, Missy has been on way too many to list here, but by my count, in 25 years, she's been on well in excess of 100 singles, most of them becoming hits. If you want to deep dive into her music, then I would go with her compilation album, Respect M.E., otherwise known as Respect Me, but capital M-E, for Missy Elliott. If you want to deep dive, then go with her debut album, 1997's Super Duper Fly, 2001's Addictive, and 2002's Under Construction. 
Where Missy excels and is influential, aside from memorable beats and songs like Work It, The Rain, and Get Your Freak On, is that she took the baton from female rappers like Queen Latifah, Moni Love, MC Light, Lil' Kim, and Foxy Brown, and ran in another direction by adding producer and remixer to her resume. Even her producing and remixing work hit the top 10 with songs like Son of a Gun with Janet Jackson and Carly Simon, and of course the smash hit version of the LaBelle classic Lady Marmalade with Pink, Christina Aguilera, Mia, and Foxy Brown. Her innovative music videos with video directors Hype Williams and Dave Myers also set the trend during the 1990s and the 2000s. In short, she dominated in fields that were the domain of men for the absolute longest and way too long a time. Now, does any of this mean that she'll get inducted as a performer this year? Maybe. Her commercial success and influence justifies it. Missy has received numerous awards and accolades for her contributions to music, including multiple Grammy Awards, BET Awards, and the MTV Video Music Awards. And in 2019, she was also inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, becoming the first female rapper to receive this honor. So that might actually work out in her favor. However, the hall has yet to put any females into the hall in any category in terms of rappers, even though you could actually make a case for Queen Latifah finally getting in and should have been done a long time ago, to be honest with you. Perhaps what the hall will do is actually do what they did with LL Cool J and Judas Priest when they finally inducted them into the hall, which was to not put them into the performers category, but to put them in to a different category category, award of merit, and that sort of thing. Still gets you in the hall either way. Because Missy Elliott absolutely deserves to be inducted into whatever category she can qualify for. And you can actually make that happen with your vote. You can vote for five different artists every single day for the next couple of months. So go to rockhall.com, that's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M, to register your vote, and the link will be in the show notes. Each week in this spot, we highlight a different musical Hall of Fame or museum since there's a bunch more than just the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's, for instance, the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, the Grammy Museum, among many, many others. But this time, though, we're going to talk about one that isn't a hall, per se, anyway. However, to me, it's probably the most important. The Library of Congress, aside from being the place in the movies All the President's Men and National Treasure, is the nation's library. Established in April of 1800, it has more than 38 million books, 14 million photographs, 70 million manuscripts, and 5.5 million maps. From a musical standpoint, it's important for a couple of reasons. The first is that it has over 8 million pieces of sheet music and over 3.5 million recordings. The second and more important reason is what it does with certain recordings. 
Since the passage of the National Recording Preservation Act of 2000, the library has developed a registry to preserve and protect certain pieces of music and other recordings that are considered historically relevant. That's pretty high honor when you think about it. Knowing that your song or album is so important to the nation that it needs to be preserved forever. This is a pretty high class list you're joining here. Some of these recordings are actually speeches or radio shows from yesteryear. For instance, the earliest recorded version of Abbott and Costello's famous Who's on First comedy sketch, also Orson Welles's War of the Worlds radio broadcast, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech are all in the registry, as are the first recordings on cylinders that Thomas Edison used to show off the phonograph at an exhibition. The first official class was in 2002. There were 50 recordings that were declared important that year. All of the above-mentioned recordings were in that first class. John Newton was born in 1725 in England. His parents were religious and his mother had intended for him to become a clergyman. However, she passed away from tuberculosis when he was six. His father remarried, but since he was a sailor, he wasn't around a whole lot. That left his stepmother to do what a lot of step-parents do. She shipped John off to boarding school. Boarding school didn't actually take with John, though, so he eventually ended up becoming a sailor apprentice on the same ship as his father. He was not what one would consider to be a model sailor. John was always getting into trouble and always flirting with death. And every time he would say that he would change and then just go right back to doing stupid stuff. Much like people who get too drunk and as they throw up over a toilet, they pray to God for the pain to stop and swear that they'll never drink again until the next weekend. In any event, John's issues made even his dad angry. So he was sent to the one place where it was hoped that he would change his ways. John was sent to join the Royal Navy. Um, that really didn't take either. In fact, he deserted in order to get with a woman he fell in love with named Polly. Once people found out that he deserted, which was extremely frowned upon back then, he had arrangements made to get transferred to a slave trading ship. On his first slave trading ship, John was so insubordinate towards his captain that he was chained on the ship like the slaves his ship was carrying, and he ended up in Sierra Leone, Africa, where he was put into forced labor on a plantation. Yep, the guy working on a slave trading ship ended up a slave himself. John ended up writing letters to his father to help get him out of the jam, which actually worked. And John ended up on the ship, the Greyhound. In 1748, the ship was off the coast of Ireland when a really violent storm hit the ship. At one point during this storm, John was at one part of the ship with a crewmate directly behind him. John moved from one spot with the crewmate moving with him. At that moment, a giant wave came over the ship where John literally just was no more than a few seconds before and swept his crewmate overboard, killing him. 
Things got so bad for the ship that John and another crew member tied themselves to the slave ship so that they wouldn't get swept overboard. As he was doing this, he said to the captain, quote, if this will not do, then Lord have mercy upon us, end quote. Then John took control of the ship's wheel for almost half a day, steering it. During his time trying to steer the ship through a torrential storm, he thought about life, specifically his life, and all of the times that he had almost died. He wondered if he was worthy, truly worthy, of God's love, or if he should even find redemption, considering how poorly he treated religious people and through them, God. If he could just get through this storm. Well, the ship finally made it through and ended up in Ireland. John decided to marry that woman he deserted the Royal Navy for, Polly, and set up captaining slave ships. That's right, kids. The writer of the most recognizable hymn in the world was a slave ship captain. For the record, by the way, he never actually renounced as a sin because, well, it was the 1700s and people back then still thought that slavery was cool and not sinful at all. In any event, he ended up doing it until he hit the age of 30, when the vigor of sea life finally caught up with him, not actually his conscience for helping to put black people into slavery or anything like that. Be that as it may, John and Polly settled down in Liverpool, England, where John started working with the Church of England, through whom he became the assistant to a parish priest in Olney, Buckinghamshire. He met a writer named William Cowper, who had also converted to Christianity, and together they wrote church verses and school plans for the Sunday school kids. John started writing hymns because it was part of the gig. In 1772, he wrote this now famous hymn, Amazing Grace. History has it that it was first used at a church prayer meeting in 1773, but there was no music to it. In 1779, John and William published it as part of a manuscript called the Olney Hymns. The song it eventually was put to was an old English song called New Britain, and that happened in the late 1840s. Of course, Amazing Grace has been recorded and covered a ton of times. We will stick with the version that makes the registry, and also a popular version based on the one that made the registry. It was the late 1960s. Folk singer Judy Collins was watching a civil rights march in Mississippi and saw how emotional people got when they heard and sang the song. She decided to record the song for her 1970 album, Wales and Nightingales. She recorded it as a way to soothe her own soul because at the time, the world in general, and her world specifically, was in immense turmoil. The civil rights movement raged on through the decades. Political assassinations ran rampant, and the Vietnam War at that time seemed never-ending. Plus, Judy was trying to recover from alcoholism herself. Apparently, this version of the song struck a chord with a lot of people because it ended up at number 15 on the Billboard Singles Chart. Judy Collins' version is the version that made the National Recording Registry. Her version isn't the one on the biggest-selling singles of all time list, though. 
a version based specifically on her version is and it's by a group that you would never ever think of as a chart-topping band the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards have been around since 1971. They're a part of the Scottish 51st Infantry Brigade. They have a pipe and drum military band. And in 1972, they recorded a version of Amazing Grace with bagpipes and horn backing up the bagpipes. For some reason, this version of the song became a worldwide smash even beating out Judy Collins's version, which it was based on. The Scots version ended up selling over 7 million physical copies worldwide, but not without some controversy. Apparently, bagpipes are bagpipes, and military bands are military bands, and never the twain shall meet. At least that's according to the Scottish Brigade, who summoned the pipe major of the Royal Dragoons and made him apologize for what they saw as demeaning. Not the military band, mind you, but the bagpipes. Yes, the bagpipes. That instrument that's the fingernail scratching a chalkboard of the music world, if not actually done properly. And combining bagpipes with a military band was considered blasphemous, at least according to the Scottish Brigade. However, performing a song written by a slave ship captain? Well, that was cool. Go figure. So you see, a deeply religious song was written by a slave ship captain, its most popular version was done by an instrument involved in a musical scandal of sorts, and the version that was put into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry was a version that has ties to the 1960s civil rights movement. Don't you just love music history? Amazing Grace, as performed by Judy Collins inducted into the Library of Congress National Recording Registry Class of 2016. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. Music